Our scripture reading this morning is from the New Testament book of Luke, the 24th chapter, verses 13 through 35, which can be found on pages 964 and 965 in your pew Bible. Now on that same day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem, and talking with each other about all these things that had happened while they were walking and discussing. Jesus himself came near and went with them, but their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, what are you discussing with each other while you walk along? They stood still, looking sad. Then one of them, whose name was Cleopas, answered him, are you the only stranger in Jerusalem who does not know the things that have taken place there in these days? He asked them, what things? They replied, the things about Jesus of Nazareth, who was a prophet mighty indeed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and leaders handed him over to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things took place. Moreover, some women of our group astounded us. They were at the tomb early this morning, and they did not find his body there. They came back and told us that they had indeed seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but they did not see him. Then he said to them, Oh, how foolish you are and how slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have declared. Was it not necessary that the Messiah should suffer these things and then enter into his glory? Then beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them the things about himself in the scriptures. As they came near the village to which they were going, he walked ahead as if he were going on. But they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, because it is almost evening and the day is now nearly over. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at the table with them, he took bread, blessed and broke it, and gave it to them. Then their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he vanished from their sight. They said to each other, were not our hearts burning within us while he was talking to us on the road, while he was opening the scriptures to us? That same hour they got up and returned to Jerusalem, and they found the eleven and their companions gathered together. They were saying, the Lord has risen indeed, and he has appeared to Simon. Then they told what had happened on the road and how he had been made known to them in the breaking of the bread. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us join together in prayer. Almighty God, we give you thanks for your word. We pray that in this moment you would quiet any voice but your own, that you might truly be our teacher. In this hour, we ask that you would speak to us of eternal things. We pray these things in the strong name of Jesus. Amen. Back in June, Reverend Elliot preached a sermon entitled, the hearthstone as the altar. 
And in this sermon, we were reminded of our Christian duty to make our homes a place where God is worshipped and a place where faith is developed. During the children's sermon, all the little children were asked a series of questions. They They were asked things like this. Boys and girls, do you read the Bible every day with your family? They were asked, do you pray at night before bed? And what about before meals? At every meal, do your parents remind you to pray? And I'll be honest, as these questions were being asked, I was sweating just a little bit as a mother. And I think there were other people in the room that were sweating a little bit too. Now, my husband and I have created a few rituals that are aimed at the spiritual development of our almost two-year-old. But like most moms wanting to do it all right, by the time I got home from church, I was feeling a pretty serious sense of urgency. And I said to my husband, we have got to develop some disciplines in this house. One of the first things we started to do was pray with my daughter before meals. We had sort of fallen out of the habit because Claire Lynn eats earlier than we do. We fix supper for ourselves later, and we would forget to pray. But no, 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 after this sermon, we got on it. And I'm happy to report that children very quickly learn new rituals. And so Claire Lynn, almost at every email, or at every ma- <laughs> meal. <laughs> you guys, what's on my mind? That's not good. I wonder if you're, you, you probably say this too. Okay, all right. At every meal, meal, oh my gosh. Meal, meal, at every meal, sorry, woo. At every meal, she hands us her little chubby hands and she scrunches up her eyes real tight and she leads us in family prayer. And this is what she says, she says, pray, 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 amen. <laughs> So I think we're making some progress, but like all of you, my husband and I realized that in the midst of sometimes overly full schedules, clearly too much email, it's easy to neglect those things that are most important. Last week I was sitting on a plane coming back to Charleston after a few days on the west coast with family. The gentleman next to me was eager to speak to someone who knew a little bit about the low country since he and his family were thinking of moving to the area. So as a Pacific Northwest transplant, I did the very best I could to share a little bit about what I knew of the low country. But eventually the conversation led to what we do for a living, as it inevitably does, and the man was shocked to learn that I am a minister. And not just a minister to women, which he said he would have understood but a minister who is allowed to preach to men and women. I mean, he was really shocked. He would have thought I was going to give him a heart attack. He was a really nice fellow, a fundamentalist Christian, who studies apologetics and debates over creation and evolution. He has chosen to homeschool all five of his children to, quote, using his words, to shelter them from this world. As he spoke those words with a smile and a chuckle, I couldn't help but think, for two Christians sitting together on a plane, we could have almost no more in common than you could possibly imagine. At one point in the conversation, he asked me what I felt was a really good question. What is the central belief that guides your faith? 
I pondered quietly. And in the silence, he answered for himself. The foundational belief that guides my faith, he said, is that I'm a sinner saved by the blood of Jesus Christ. A sinner saved by Jesus' blood, right. I've been around the block enough to know that this language is meaningful to many Christians and is certainly part of our story. But as I sat there, I found myself asking, is this the good news of the gospel that Jesus wants us to proclaim? Is this the foundational principle that I intend to teach my daughter? After a pause, I offered the man a slightly different perspective. For me, I said, the foundational belief that guides my faith is this. The world is a broken place. We see it all around us, and we see it in ourselves. But I believe the good news of the gospel is that God does not abandon us in our brokenness. God in Jesus Christ paves the way for our redemption and the redemption of the world. The man eyed me suspiciously and said something about being glad that I acknowledged personal responsibility for sin. Our conversation eventually fell off, and I found myself alone with my own thoughts. What are the foundational beliefs that shape my faith? What are the primary spiritual truths I intend to pass along to my daughter? I think these are critical questions for all of us. Questions we ought to answer carefully and thoughtfully as the people of God for all of our claims have significant implications. In seminary, I recall sitting in a systematic theology class when a preceptor announced, everyone take out a sheet of paper and a pencil. In just a moment, you are going to engage in a little exercise. I want you to pretend that the world is coming to an end in 15 minutes. There's one shuttle of children that will be sent to space and saved. Your job is to write down everything they need to know about the Christian faith to take with them. Your document is the only thing they will have about the Christian faith, so try to, in- try to include everything that they need to know. You have 10 minutes to begin. There were about 12 of us in the room, and we wrote furiously, complaining when the time came to an end. The teacher then said, now I want you to take some time And look at your very first sentence. Reflect deeply on it. Once you've done that, I want you to turn to your neighbor and explain why that sentence is where you chose to begin. Later he said, all theological inquiry and claims we make about God begin somewhere. And the first theological claim anyone makes often reveals what is most important, most foundational to what they believe. If you were to take part in the same exercise, what would you write? If you were to pass along what you believed were the timeless truths of the Christian faith, I wonder what you would share. It might be an exercise worth trying at home this week. Take out a piece of paper and a pencil. Set your watch or whatever. Ten minutes. Give it a go. I looked down at my sheet of paper 
And I read the first line I wrote for those fictitious children. Short sentence, I wrote this. Death is not the end of the story. It's probably what I should have told the man on the plane. For the last few Sundays here at Mount Pleasant Presbyterian, we have been reflecting on resurrection stories that we find in the Gospels. And by resurrection stories, I mean stories that take place in the Gospel that follow the days and weeks after that first Easter, after Jesus' resurrection. Two weeks ago, two missionaries to Iraq spoke here from this pulpit about the great commission that Jesus gave to his disciples that we have inherited right before he returned to heaven. And just last week, Reverend Harrington spoke about the redemption story of the Apostle Peter. I love that story. And Christ's command to feed my sheep. This week, we have heard another resurrection story. We have heard about two disciples' encounter with Jesus on the road to Emmaus. Now, I think these resurrection stories are critical. I'm glad we're taking a look at them as we reflect on what we understand to be the good news of Jesus Christ, as we reflect on what are the foundational truths of our faith, because I believe that each of these stories does more than simply prove that Christ was raised from the dead. They teach us how we are called to live in light of the good news that death is not the end of the story. These stories give us a deeper understanding of the good news that God longs for us to share with the world. So let's take a closer look at this particular resurrection story. In the 24th chapter of Luke, two disciples are on their way to Emmaus following Passover in Jerusalem when Jesus encounters them on their journey. The two men are deep in conversation and they hardly raise their eyes to the man who joins them along the road. What are you discussing? Jesus asks them. One of the disciples, whose name was Cleopas, answers him, Are you the only stranger in all of Jerusalem who does not know the things that have taken place these last few days? What things? Jesus asked. At this point in the narrative, the disciples stop. All the movement stops. And in verse 17 it says, Looking sad. They said the things about Jesus of Nazareth. The two men tell Jesus about the betrayal, the arrest, and the crucifixion, and end with rumors of his resurrection. And with a great sigh, they reveal the full weight of their distress. They look at Jesus and they say, We had hoped that he was going to be the one to redeem Israel. The one. The men laid out their despair before Jesus. As the readers, we know that had they been able to lift their eyes, even a few inches, they would have seen that hope stood before them. The very hope that they were looking for, the redemption of Israel, was staring right back at them. Jesus and the disciples walk on together toward Emmaus, and Jesus proceeds to do something that's worthy of our attention. Starting with the Old Testament, he goes back through the scriptures, illuminating passages the men had somehow missed or misunderstood. 
He speaks to them from the Bible, describing the suffering servant, the Messiah who would suffer for the redemption of Israel. Luke says that the hearts of the disciples were warmed as Jesus was speaking to them from the scriptures, but it wasn't until they sat down later that evening and broke bread together that they finally saw Jesus after all that time for who he really was. In this moment of revelation, one of the foundational truths of the Christian faith crystallizes before them and before us. Death is not the end of the story. Death is not the end of the story. The story the disciples on the road to Emmaus had been telling themselves as they were walking together needed to be rewritten. The way that they had understood scripture up until that point, the way that they had understood how God was going to redeem Israel up until that point was limited somehow. They were miserable because they believed that the death of Jesus brought an end to what God was doing in and through him, but these disciples were wrong. Last Saturday, I was unable to attend the funeral of a little baby named Alma who died unexpectedly in her mama's womb at 37 and a half weeks. Her mom and dad are good friends of mine, so I was sad I couldn't be with them in person. For the occasion, a church minister, a church musician wrote a tune named for baby Alma, and the song was sung for the first time at the service. The song affirms the enduring truth of our Christian faith that the men on the road to Emmaus learned that day. Let me read you the first verse. Nothing is lost on the breath of God. Nothing is lost forever. God's breath is love, and, all, and that love will remain, holding the world forever. No feather too light, no hair too fine, no flower too brief in its glory, no drop in the ocean, no dust in the air, but is counted and told in God's story. The hymn is beautiful, and its words contain a promise we ought to teach our children, proclaim from the rooftops and write on the palms of our hands. Death is part of the human condition, but death is not the end of God's story. The hymn also reminds me that much of our human understanding about life and death needs to be broadened, deepened, and even corrected with God's perspective. You see, while Jesus was walking with those disciples on the road to Emmaus, he gently, but with clear intent, broke down the stories the disciples had been telling themselves so that a new narrative could be told. The disciples could only see suffering and death, but when Jesus showed up alive, they learned that God's story had not come to an end, but was full of hope and full of possibility. I believe this story should give us pause and cause each of us to ask right here and right now, are there some stories that I have been telling myself over and over again that might need some alteration? 
Is there a fixed narrative in my mind that suggests that all is lost? The future is hopeless. Just like those disciples on the road to Emmaus, God might need to dismantle a story you've been telling yourself for a very long time. One that makes room for the possibility of resurrection and new life. Because what we see as failure and hopelessness is never the full and eternal picture. Because death is not the end of God's story, ever. Not for those disciples and not for any of us. As you ponder your own beliefs that guide your living, as you reflect on your own foundations of your own faith, and you decide what truths you will pass along to your own children, my hope and prayer is that the enduring love and mercy and mission of Christ will guide you. That Christ, the one who was raised from the dead, will perhaps dismantle long-told narratives that hold you captive in fear or distress. And most importantly, that all of you will lay claim to God's assurance, now and always, that God's work is ongoing. Ongoing in my life, in your lives, in all the world. And may all this be accomplished to the glory of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.